Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Phyllis Wheatley is known as the first African-American to publish a book of poetry in America in 1773. What does it mean to be the first in a tradition? I spoke with the poet Rowan Ricardo Phillips, the author of the collections The Ground and Heaven, and a critical study called When Blackness Rhymes with Blackness, about the status of being the first, about Phyllis Wheatley, about Frederick Douglass, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Langston Hughes, and Derek Walcott. What does it mean to be the first in a tradition that then tends to treat those achievements only as symbols, but neglects to read the achievements themselves? Listen to this conversation on what the canon constitutes, how people fit into it, and what Philip Sweetley's achievement is. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Bear. Rowan, good morning. Morning, uh, Uli. So, I'm really happy to have you here for a conversation, for Think About It, about some of your works, some of the works of Phyllis Wheatley, Paul Orrin Stumbar, Frederick Douglass, maybe also Derek Walcott. So first of all, thank you. Thanks for having me. So in one of your poetry collections I saw, you said at the end of the ground, you speak about yourself as a kind of troubadour, brilliantly confused, <laughs> and you say this poem or this poetry was translated from Antiguan to Catalan to American, yeah. right? Yeah. So you're a poet and you're also a critic, mm -hmm. a literary theorist. And I see you start out speaking in this poetry collection, your first collection, The Ground, from what voice? So it's from Antiguan to Catalan to American. Just give me a sense, what does that mean? Ah, well the funny thing about that last poem, I think it's very much kind of like in the key signature of my temperament. It's sort of a found poem. If you remember the great Catalan novel, Tirano Lo Blanc by Joan Matoral, at the end of it, there's a Deo Gratis, a kind of like thanking God for having done the work. And I basically took the end of that and I wrestled it into my own type of song. Obviously, it doesn't say, you know, translated from Catalan to Antigua into American. But I've always thought of the, the poet's journey as a troubadour's journey. And if you think about the way in which we would be a troubadour today, it's kind of like 
having a pretty ample sack to keep not just your songs, but the other songs that you want to live with and wrestle with and see the world and try to make sense of that. Fortunately, I grew up not thinking that I had to choose. I live my life as a non-accented Caribbean person and with a name that's hard to identify, I think, socially or ethnographically, which has led me to just, I just mind the depths of who I am through what I read and how I live and always trying to do the right thing. Supposedly Baldwin said action is the only testament to moral behavior. I haven't found where he said that. It might be apocrypha, but I really like the idea of that. To go back to say you have, as a troubadour, sort of a collection of songs, and you're saying a collection of traditions, of Catalan tradition, Caribbean tradition, American tradition. But you just said it's expansive. You can draw on all of that. So it's not to make a choice to say, I'm from no. here. I write like this. This is me. No, absolutely not. I think that the choice is to let it all live and breathe. I like to think that the canons out there, the literary and social hierarchies out there, they didn't anticipate me. They didn't anticipate you, right? They were- Probably not. Probably not, right? <laughs> probably not. But there are structures that anticipate their future. And what we do as modern beings is we're kind of this unanticipated shard. We, we kind of ruin their idea of prophecy and prolepsis. And the best way that we do that, I think, is by thinking of ourselves as a center you know what I mean? I just don't think of a subject position as being Antiguan or Catalan or a, a New Yorker born in the late 20th century as being other or belated to anything. The more the time goes on, you ask people, what came first, Dunn or Shakespeare? Shakespeare or Webster? They don't know. Eliot or, well, Longfellow would be easier, but Eliot or Yeats, and people tend to not no, unless they really... But Ron, you know that a lot of people don't totally see themselves or that the culture doesn't see people in this way to say expansive. You can draw on all of it. You contain, and not contain, because you, you rewrote a Catalan novel. There's also a strong rewriting. It's not that Absolutely. you just echo and pick up. Right, and those are remixes. That's this thing that I tell when I teach my students now. I tell them, no generation's been better prepared to understand art and literature and tradition in a healthy way than them, because what's second nature to them? Satire, remixes, mashups, all these things are second nature to them, even the idea of genre when they look for their music. I'm gonna push you again a little bit. I think yes, at the same time, I think we also see, and I wanna to get to one of your other books, we see a tendency for people to not exercise that freedom and say, no, you belong here, they belong there. And even the canon is at this tradition, you just said Don, Shakespeare, Longfellow, you wrote another book, Phyllis Wheatley is in there. And she becomes a very important figure because she's you know, supposed to be the first person of African descent to publish a book on America, probably correct, writes poetry. Not the first poet who came over as an enslaved person, but the one we know. Right. So she has this status, and I think when you grappled in that book with her, with Douglas, with Langston Hughes, with Dunbar, with Derek Walcott, you pick these people who all perform these functions to so say, this is the Caribbean poet. Right. This is the jazz poet. This is the poet who writes in vernacular. Yeah, the slave poet. Right? And this is the slave poet, Phyllis Wheatley. And so I think there's this tendency in the canon to identify people as an identity that people can then hold on to. Absolutely. And that's actually what I meant when I say I tell the young readers out there to think about what they have at their disposal because we're taught almost all the time to not think about those things and instead to think about identity and place as these allegorical markers. I think what those artists that you mentioned, whether it's Phyllis Wheatley, Frederick Douglass, 
Langston Hughes, Derek Walcott, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, what they knew was that they were understood as allegories, as fixed markers, and that their so work what do you actually. Mean by allegories? Okay, so you know, when you talk about, for instance, the vernacular poet, when you talk about the jazz poet, right. when you talk so about a Dunbar, named identity. So what I meant is a poet who writes in sort of spoken African American idiom. He writes around 1890s, right. 1900. Right, turn of the century, parts. 1902, 1901. In what is considered, I guess, standard English. Right, right, very kind of like English poesy, flowy, rhymed. And then the other one is sort of spoken African-American vernacular, right? Right, so right, very close to minstrelsy. One career, is it one? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I mean, his famous lines, yeah, do I marvel at this curious thing to make a poet black and bid him sing, right? But then at the same time, he has poems like, when the corn pones hot. Right, where he kind of takes this like, the subject oh, position is incredibly important. Right, but what's pointed in that is he's taking a subject position that wasn't thought of as a subject position, a right. speaking position right. in poetry, right. which is an enslaved or a postbellum African-American individual, right? What happens with the music though, is that it becomes, it became and still is received as representative of a type of an ethnography more than a subject position, right? So when we have the rhyme of the ancient mariner, water, water everywhere, and not to drop to drink, we think, man, it really sucked for that guy to be out there like that in the story of redemption. We don't think this is indicative of, right, the Western European the British naval dilemma, dilemma right, as they, as they expand into the imperial waters, right? We, yeah. Although we have those readings now, but and you're right. Elegant. But it's yeah, supposed but. to be a poem from a specific tradition about a universal one. The problem identified for Phyllis Wheatley or for Dunbar is people have a harder time reading it as universal. They say, oh, she's the first enslaved person publishing poetry in this country, in America. And it stays there, and there's something that returns it. And I wonder whether you could say something about this. That fulfills an important function for people. She became a model for so many people for sure. now hundreds of years, really. Sure, I mean, you know, Phyllis Wheatley marks the beginning of what we consider an African-American literary tradition. She was the first African-American to publish a book. The book became, particularly I think when we get to the point of the slave narratives, the book becomes incredibly important capital, not just obviously in a marketing sense, but in a sense of attestation, right? Phyllis Wheatley had to go through 12 of the finest men in her community and they attested in writing, signed, sealed, and stamped, and put in the front of her book that she was the author. I mean, when you look at this attestation, so they all these, the highest ranking people of the colony of Massachusetts, a British colony at this time, it says an African-American woman, and they have a lot of white men saying, she is actually capable of doing this. She didn't cheat and lie. She produced these words herself. We tested her many times. And so in some ways also, I think what's kind of haunting about this attestation is there's a framing of what African-American literature by a bunch of white men sitting in justice over her. Certainly. Say, we can verify you're really you, which hasn't entirely left our culture. This no. idea, we can verify this is you, we're gonna authenticate you, we're gonna put our name in front of it, and then the book may sell. No, you know, the, the funny thing is you can push well into the 20th century and find debut works by black writers with a really hearty introduction by an established critic or other poet. What's touching about the Wheatley situation is that it's important to have firsts, right? I mean, the whole Western canon is built on this idea of firsts. On originality and on authenticity. Yes. I am the first person ever to say it like this. 
And then everybody after me has to deal with that. Right, and you even have lying attempts. Milton found it so important that he lied, right? Never before attempted in verse or rhyme, right? When Tasso had written, you know, his epic and, you know, Milton, <laughs> Milton basically just erased that. But the difference between Wheatley in, and I use the word carefully, the African-American literary tradition or canon versus, say, a Homer or Virgil or Horace is that the work has been frozen in its announced moment. In other words, you look at Milton, you look at Lycidas, and you'll see tons of Virgil, right? You look at Pound or Eliot, and you'll see flotsam, some of it really obvious, of Dante or Homer. That the works that were taken in the Western canon as being the bedrock, the first this, or this is where things flow from, flew into the other works. And then it kind of like became this organic botanical thing. Whereas with Phyllis Wheatley, I'm really hard pressed to think of many, June Jordan is an example, but there are very few traces of her poetics mm -hmm. in what has flown out of the work. Now, that's not to say that writers should sound like Phyllis Wheatley, just in the same way that writers don't try to sound too much like, well, actually, they do try to sound like Dante and Homer. But that's a story for another day. But it's just, unfortunately, black writers often are frozen in terms of what they've done, the significance of their work in a timeline, because we understand African-American achievement in terms of a timeline right. more than in terms of the complexity of a certain poetics, which is why, for instance, Langston Hughes, for most people, Langston Hughes, the Langston Hughes canon is like up until he's 23. That's you notice? There's like, there's the Harlem Renaissance, Langston Hughes, but there's not really the kind of like, Dust Bowl Days, Langston Hughes, the communist Langston Hughes. I mean, there's wonderful scholarship in on all of this, but I mean, just how it's received, the atmosphere of the work, how it's taught in schools. So say this different. It's not that everybody reads Homer that carefully, but you're saying this work kind of spreads almost underground into the canon, and it shapes the canon. The way Eliot said, then every later work has to reshuffle the canon retrospectively. But you're saying with someone like Phyllis Wheatley, she gets frozen in this incredibly important role, the mother of African-American literature, she's called. In your book, you try to analyze the status and say, what does the status of firstness mean in a canon, which you said it very cautiously, the African-American literary tradition. What's the caution? Why not just say, well, there's that tradition, then there's another tradition? Or in a different way, I'll ask, is Phyllis Wheatley in the Norton Anthology of American Literature, the way that Whitman is in there, and the way that, you know, I don't know, uh, Faulkner is in there? Right. You know, when you think about the difference between a Whitman and a Dickinson, for instance, they can be thought of as firsts without it being factual or chronological, and that allows their work to become a poetics. What's dangerous, what's been hurtful, I think, to how Wheatley is kind of like grown as an artist is that we don't ask, I think, sufficiently, and what does it mean? Why is it important that she was first? She was the first African-American author to publish a book in the United States. Wonderful. But we seem, there seems to be kind of a self-sufficiency with that. Like, that's what right. we're supposed to do, produce things that we mark, right? So you have a Margaret Walker, we have a Lorraine Hansberry, and the work becomes frozen. Hey, how do you unfreeze it? How do you activate it? Because you say in your book, the simple solution is not just to read the poetry more carefully. 
but how do you make the status of the first into something that's productive for the second, the third, for the whole generation, rather than say, this is one and you have to live up to it or repeat the gesture. Right, which you can't do anyway. You which can't you can't do, do anyway. anyway. Yeah. Well, like, although the tradition you've laid it out in these kind of Bloomian terms is always that, to say, I'm the first, I'm the first, I'm the first. Yeah, sure. I'm trying to overthrow my ancestors. But here it's a different one. It's actually, maybe that's one thing. Yeah, I find myself thinking about hierarchy a lot. Not just African-American literary hierarchy, but actually every language and literature that I know. And I think that my mind, Uli, is inherently unhierarchical. I don't think about hierarchies in terms of kind of like, which writer is better than which? Which writer came before another? I understand the need for it in terms of putting together nice anthologies, but I'm not just a critic. You know, we started talking about my poetry. I'm an artist. And for me as an artist, I need more from a work and an idea of tradition than who came before whom. I need an idea that gives me a sense of how this work breathes now. I want Phyllis Wheatley to be here with me now. And her first When I reread the poems this weekend, I was actually struck by this really strange kind of startling empathy she has. There's lots of poems who say, a lady who survived a hurricane in North Carolina, to a woman who lost her brother and her child. And you think, I hadn't seen actually a collection of poetry where someone says, I'm gonna just speak to people who've experienced grief I cannot imagine. And this I cannot imagine becomes in the poem. She says, I can't imagine what you've lived through, but I'll imagine it. So it's this kind of expansive imagination. And I actually thought it was striking when I read it because I'd read all these things. Phyllis Wheatley, oh, it's stuck in its time. It's a kind of formal pre-romantic poetry before romanticism invents the subject position as the driving force rather than divinity or some other order. I thought actually there is something in Wheatley that opens her up because she doesn't talk about herself only or exclusively. And it's, she doesn't just talk about God. She talks about how do you make sense of someone else's misfortune. Right. She has a famous poem to another young painter, another yes, African-American paint, painter, African right? Painter, right? Maybe after reading When Blackness Rhymes with Blackness and coming back to Wheatley, yes. you have this sense of it. Because if you realize, I think that what's difficult, the wonderful, I think, opening of a reading of a Wheatley, of a Paul Lawrence Dunbar, of a Langston Hughes, it's there, but it's really hard to find these poets and encounter these poets in a way that does not put what we've been talking about, their place in the timeline first and foremost. But when you just kind of come to them in the way that you did after reading When Blackness Rhymes with Blackness, you start to look for these rich moments of empathy, these turns. I love the moment in On Being Brought from Africa to America where she goes, redemption, I neither sought nor knew. And the way in which the tone of that you cannot presume, right. which is if you just read it following the meter, da 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 da, da then you go, redemption I once never saw or knew, and the presumption is, but then I didn't, isn't that great? But you could easily hear it go, redemption, I neither sort. But then it also means redemption is a thing given to me, presented to me. I didn't seek it. But then she talks about, about the man who wrested her from her father's arms. Right. What kind of inhumanity is that? That's also in that poem. So right. it's interesting when you think about it to not put her just as the first of something, because the critical gesture then comes dangerously close to being another attestation of a bunch of people sitting in justice and saying, this is Phyllis Wheatley, we give her this status, which is the beginning of the book, that all these officials in Massachusetts had to verify. And yeah, that criticism and creating the canon actually is 
sitting in judgment, we presume aesthetic judgment, but it actually does something else. What you're saying, it ends up too much being biographical judgment. This is the first step, this is the first step, this is the first step. Absolutely. You begin the book, when blackness rhymes with blackness, what does it mean to read African-American poetry? Is it poetry written by African-Americans? And you say, this is a question of genre, which it's a question of definition, of legality, of who decides what belongs where. This is poetry, is that prose? And you, you make a pretty strong case that the African-American tradition, the way it's been conceived, has a hard time with the presence of poetry, of lyric poetry, of subjective personal poetry. What do you think the tension is there? And the tension, I think, is what you're trying to work out, to sort of say there's a productive tension that could actually be activated rather than we build a canon and ultimately through Frederick Douglass and other people, poetry isn't quite the canon. Well, yes, I do argue in Blackness Rhymes with Blackness that poetry is at the center of everything, but poetry is also the big problem and has always been the big problem with how we think about African-American literary canon. But the problem is there in Phyllis Wheatley, and it's right in front of us. Phyllis Wheatley was the first. You'll find seven out of ten, maybe, people, and they say something about Phyllis Wheatley, they say, oh, Phyllis Wheatley was the first African-American poet to publish poems. Which, they go, and they say it's a positive thing, right? Right, right, but it's, <laughs> also, not, but it's also not, it's not true. She was the first African-American poet to publish a book of poetry. Lucy Terry, Jupiter Hammond, and also Francis Williams from Jamaica, who went to Cambridge and wrote in Latin, right? So all of a sudden, there's this curious erasure. The difference is there was a book. But why is that so important? Homer didn't publish a book, right? So there's this kind of moment where it's like Phyllis Wheatley's achievement was phenomenal, and she should be at the center of a literary tradition, American and African-American. But there's this way in which we don't even really consider the primacy that we put not on Phyllis Wheatley's achievement, but on the book. And when you do that, you're already saying the poetry comes second. The poetry comes second to the production of this materialist object, right? Which is why we don't talk about Jupiter Hammond at all, right? Because there's no book, right? And we don't talk about Francis Williams, not only because there's no book, but because there's Latin, which gets us into translation and everything like that and our kind of like monolinguistic territories. So all these rich complications, and I'm very careful with using the word complications, but all these rich complications that have to do with the role of poetry in thinking about how we began as people get put to the side so we can celebrate and focus on the book. Actually, really interesting. I'm thinking, so Emily Dickinson, an interesting case, because she is definitely at the center of the canon, right? There's a multi-centered canon, but it's lots of letters, hidden in letters, not even set the way we want to set them. There's lots of debates, there's different versions, extend versions. So it's a lot of editors afterwards who create our Emily Dickinson for us. Right. Mostly right. white men who sit down and say, this is the right order. That's These right. are the right poems. These are the poems the way you should know them. And then you had awesome work like Virginia Jackson's Dickinson yeah. Misery. Yes. Awesome book, I love that book. Virginia Jackson's book is saying, the Dickinson we have was not the Dickinson who wrote, but it's very hard to establish who was that because it doesn't fit into our idea of the canon book to book to book. Right, right. And that, I think, is a similar energy to when blackness rhymes with blackness, because what ended up happening, I think, with Dickinson is, without saying it, you put the book first and foremost. So then the book becomes the ascent to 
literacy to freedom to escape subjugation and to become your own speaking subject. So right after this, you have the 19th century come and you have the slave and the freed slave narratives. And they're all about making books, producing books and everything like that. There's so much momentum that brought us to the beginning of the 20th century, 1902, 1903, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. At that point, there's so much momentum to think about the book, the book, the book, the book, and to not think about these important questions about poetry, how we completely lost Jupiter Hammond, for instance, right? Say something about Frederick Douglass in this role, because Frederick Douglass writes his autobiographies, so they are different status, of course. And there's a... But that brings in what's important, I think. African Americans came to this country and they were making oral poetry. The slave songs, the spirituals, right, were a form of poetic output that eventually became shirk songs and the blues when we get to the 20th century. But Frederick Douglass, for me, you're hard pressed to find 19th century African-American poets who can wrestle with the strength and the power and the provocation of the 18th century poets like Jupiter Hammond, Phyllis Wheatley, and obviously the poets that came after them in the 20th century. But Frederick Douglass is writing, he writes three autobiographies, which I think also speaks to the power of the book, right? I'm going to write this story of myself. And again and again, it's a type of cultural authority. But in his first one, the 1845 narrative, in the second chapter, so early in the book, he talks about hearing these songs, right? Which are a form of poetry, right? He's hearing these songs, hearing these songs, hearing these songs. And he goes out of his way to say how they move him. They move him emotionally but he didn't really fully get them because he wasn't there in the middle of it. So there's this sense in which what is African-American poetic material there in a loosely pre-literate period, right? Someone who aspires to writing and bookmaking really goes out of his way to distance himself from the production, not from the value of it, but the value becomes all about affect. It moves me to tears. He has a moment where he says, even as I'm writing this, which means even as I'm writing this you know, book, evidence, this prose, right. this evidence of my emotion. authority, <laughs> right? I'm receiving this emotion yeah. from the poetry, yeah. which is falling onto my hands as I write, which to me is a really wonderful symbol of what's happened with the way in which we think about African-American poetry in the literature writ large, that it's prose-based, because mm-hmm. prose, even today, if you go to most MFA programs, you will find a situation where, of course, you have the poets <laughs> doing their thing, but it's sense that it's the prose writers, particularly the novelists and now memoirists, who understand that they have an opportunity to enter the market in a really kind of like... Let me stay with Douglas for a moment. So this strange, it's actually moving episode. And he says also, if you were to hear these songs, you may just be moved to already condemn slavery. That's right. But he doesn't include them. He has this kind of parody at the end of one of the books. But he says, basically, I can't include them in here because I want to move you by argument and reason and not emotion. And I wonder whether this is another challenge for an African-American writer to say, I want to step out of this idea that I'm based in emotion, affect, song, and dance. No, I have to speak the language of legality, rationality, politics, and erudition. So in some ways, there's a cleavage. And you're saying what's hard is that Douglas is one of the most powerful, important people in American history, one of the great people who actually changes the way the country thinks of itself. And is he making a choice here that's just tactical, saying, I can't afford to actually 
side on this side of this. What would it mean to include those songs? And in some ways what you're saying about these songs is what does it mean to listen to a way people express themselves outside of the canon before they've been canonized? Right on. So look, I'd say if you want to understand how we think about African-American poetry writ large within the literary canon, you have to look at Frederick Douglass's book because Frederick Douglass got it. I think he understood that poetry had an inchoate power, but that it could not be, in his mind, the vehicle to fulfill his authorial ambitions, his social ambitions, because he wanted to enter in a conversation on a different set of terms. And so he creates this really elegant, and as you put it, I think so well, tactical division. Right? I understand this, this kind of, I don't believe in authenticity, but this authentic blackness. I come from this, I understand it, it is poetical, mm -hmm. but I am in the process of explaining something to you in the form of what you understand as a reason. But that's why even at the end of the 1845 narrative, he is so fluent in poetry that he can make a parody of bad English verse. Douglas, in this sense, shows basically this split that in the 20th century became blues and poetry, Harlem Renaissance poetry. And I think even what you saw with counterculture in the 60s, with the beats and the way in which poetry became kind of an avenue for Poet Maldives and Infant Tribes, right? That poetry became this space where we don't kind of verify and prove an authorial self, but we do something else. We exist in these types of complications that Douglas honestly didn't have time for, but he knew he needed to address, right? And this is why you see it early in the book that he gets to poetry. And then he leaves it behind. It's kind of left behind forever, but it gets us to Dunbar. I want to call Douglas a poet because he had this engagement with poetry, and I think he knew exactly what he was doing. But Dunbar is a poet who really, in his work, gives us this cleaving. What's sad for Dunbar is that while Douglas could make it about moving affect that he could describe and then leave behind, Dunbar wanted to create a poetic subject using what he thought were the remnants of that type of black poetic past, but it became so popular for the wrong reasons. This love of mimicry, this love of minstrelsy by white authors that it, along with alcoholism, just completely annihilated him. On a quick side note, I think that this cleaving that we're talking about is why, for instance, when you think about it, when we think about black life and black lives, we've always been encouraged to think about twos. You started by asking me about how I think about both and instead of either or, but it's been Du Bois or Washington, right. Malcolm X or Martin Luther King, right. right? And it's gone on and on to the point where it was Cool Modi or LL Cool J, right? Jay-Z or Kanye, Lauryn Hill or Erica Badu. Right. But I think that even all those pop culture moments where they ask, like, who you got? Whose side you're on? Really, and I kid you not, come all the way back to these moments of thinking about having to choose between one type of affect and another type of authority. And the root of it is the lack of real time that we spent with poetry and, and that poetry can be messy. It can provide little or no answers. Keats gave us negative capability from Shakespeare. It's kind of amazing when you think about the Western canon and the way in which they came up with all of these theories to deal with this like, oh no. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Well, it is kind of interesting. I think when you just said Keats' sense of romantics, there's an invention of subjectivity in romantic poetry, right? right? Which every poet then ultimately has to deal with and contend with. If you fast forward it's today, when you just said the tension between authority and affect, if you take from the romantics and you go to today, where supposedly we are haunted by identity politics, right. which are not a new invention, which are probably found in Homer, but there's a sense in which there's affect and there's authority. And people get very confused to say, well, there should be authority, which means somebody has power over other people, really, usually, versus there's affect, that's just emotion and experience. And some might say, if you stake authority on affect, it's troubling the whole system. I think what's interesting, then it troubles the system where power is just really execution of power, legitimation, all that kind of stuff. So that poetry activates something what I think you're trying to do is it activates a question rather than gives you an answer. Right. It doesn't say, oh, this is affect, this is authentic, this is song. No. He's saying it challenges the entire other setup. Right. That is the power and the glory of poetry. If not, then it just becomes a representative model for affect, which is kind of dead art. So for me, the Hughes, when we think about the canonical Hughes poems that we love, the Negro Speaks of Rivers, or the Weary Blues, which I go in depth in when blackness rhymes with blackness about, when you think about it as, well, this is, a, this is a poet who wanted to give voice to the blues in his poetry, then it always becomes, well, this is another example of a poet who wanted to give voice to the blues in African-American poetry. And you lose any sense of what it's like for a poet to sit in a club and see that somebody, without saying a word, absolutely have an audience in their pocket by whirring lines, blue notes, certain chords, and progressions. It is really naive to think that a poet then thinks, let me just go and do a transcript of that because it's neat. You think, what the hell? Why can't I do that? Right. And when you look at, for instance, a poem like The Weary Blues, all of these clues are there that Hughes is not trying to transcribe what happened when he hears this blues player playing at this mm -hmm. club, but he's rather trying to reorder right. his relationship to that music so that the poetry can master it and thrive on it. And it basically comes back to what to me is a very simple idea. I think that most good theories come to a simple idea, and it's that black folk and black lives are complicated. I'm very leery, and I guess in the Hughesian sense, weary, of when we have models to make things not complicated, which is, goes back to this idea of allegory. You're this type of poet, right? We have this type of poet, this type of writer, this type of writer. This is the writer who won this. This is the writer who came first here, or there, or there. They become very static, and right. they lose this sense of the way in which they... And in um, your book, I think you have these moments where people, as much as they were trying to be generous, sort of said, Phyllis Wheatley, amazing, really important, but the poetry, you know, dated. They said, Paul Owens Dunbar, really incredible, but too close to minstrelsy, all these other things. Sure. They said Derek Walcott, he says, you know, not black enough for where I am, not white enough to fit into the canon. So in some ways, these tensions, you're saying, actually, the complication. This complication, is it limited to black people are complicated, black lives are complicated? <laughs> Do you think, or is, I mean, I'm going to try to ask you, is this a universal condition? Is everybody complicated? Or is literature the way to key us into the fact that we may be a bit more complicated? Well, we, we may be a bit more complicated, but I think that when you think about the best 
literary criticism, theory, and essays that you've read on black art, they tend to be way out there when way you think there. about that, right? Yeah. Way out there. And it's hard to then create a constellation where you can go, okay, well, this is, I know you're working on a list, right? right. But it's kind of like, this is the way in which we can put this together and have a benign canon, yeah. right? Why is this? Because when you think about how complicated black lives are and black artistic production is, you all of a sudden realize that most of what you're taught has been actually the opposite. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why it's important to take a little bit of time and think about, wait a second, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Phyllis Wheatley and her poems are really kind of like complicated. And not complicated in a, I don't understand what they're saying, Uli, right. but in terms of like, Everything that I've been taught, or most of what I've been taught, doesn't chase down really particular questions. Like, is it okay for me to say, I don't care that Phyllis Wheatley was the first anything? I think it is, because then I could read Phyllis Wheatley and Jupiter Hammond, right? I could read Phyllis Wheatley as a contemporary or in some type of competition with Pope or with Gray right. or with Collins. And there's not this kind of ethnographic bridge, which is important in one sense, but in another sense leaves us to not let Phyllis Wheatley get at her competitors, right? And better her influences, which is the point. When Milton writes Tasso out, right? When Lowell attempts to write Berryman out, now that Bishop is having what seems to be the last laugh on Lowell, this is about being able to have writers blur the boundaries that the way in which we're taught to understand them have confined them. So Whitman has changed, Dickinson has so changed. You said I'm trying to create a kind of benighted canon. I actually think about this all the time. Who should be in a list? Any list. No, but it's actually really important, is what I'm saying. So you're saying the list should not be an order of the great supernovas of the literary tradition, but it should be actually the way in which they are related to one another without a sense that greatness has been defined by how many people have read it or talked about it, but actually what's in it. And then the criteria of the list becomes really important. What really moves me in unexpected ways? And books that actually I have been taught in a certain way because the culture teaches you a lot, that they shouldn't move me as much. So Zora Neale Hurston and Maxine Hong Kingston were books that kind of shook me. I didn't get some of it, but I knew I wasn't getting some of it. And I think they draw you in in this way. So in some ways, the canon should be that, a kind of continuous earthquake or something. I'm mixing a lot of metaphors. <laughs> yeah, no, well, mix on. Mix on, DJ, mix yeah, on. Wheatley in it. Frederick Douglass, yes. But if you notice, Rowan Ricardo you just went, <laughs> but if you notice, you just went chronologically. And that's the thing. It's really difficult, I think, to think about black literary production in a way that's not chronological because they're so frozen in time. The great exception, somebody who you've done some really lovely work with recently, is Baldwin. Mm -hmm. I am fascinated by this resuscitation mm -hmm. of Baldwin because we're both men of a certain age yeah, yeah, who remember yeah. Baldwin's reputation, yeah. I won't say five years ago, but 10 years ago even, right? I mean, and when you talk about 15 years ago or so, you had kind of like the early, New York Baldwin, who went away, kind of a more famous version of Chester Hines. So I had a conversation on another country, which is totally startlingly outrageous. <laughs> so in some ways, even the Baldwin that's sort of supposed to help us through our muddled times right now, 
you go to Baldwin and he's not actually really giving you guidance. He says, this is as difficult as it gets. Right. And you're going to stay there for a while with me. He's not saying, oh, this is the way out. So I think Baldwin is also used in a good way. I think it's good people reading Baldwin, but there's a yeah. sense in which, oh, it'll give us the answers. And then you go to Baldwin and says, whoa, Ooh, it deepens right. the problem. Right. You say this about the blues in Lengths and Use, and you say the blues doesn't give you the answer to the problem, but says, this is the problem. Stay with me with the problem. That's right. And that already is something. That's right. That's right. It's a way of kind of like enduring the problem but not resolving it, which I think is really important because problems are here to stay, unfortunately. But that's the one thing I take from this book, which I thought for me was the most powerful moral dimension when you said you stay with the problem, you restate it, but actually by restating, you're recreating it for the person now who's listening, the reader. And that transforms it. So it's not solving the problem, not solving the condition, saying this is it, but saying by restating it. So it's a form of repetition that isn't just the same, but actually saying it deepens it. That's right. And that's why I draw a vital distinction between repetition and increment. You know, it's something my teacher, Michael S. Harper, really drilled into me, the sense that repetition is one thing, but increment, where something seems like it's repeating, but there's a movement. There's some type of movement, whether it's physical, whether it's spatial, whether it's existential, whether it's philosophical. And it's not hierarchical saying this is better or worse, it descends or falls, but say this is different from the previous one. And that difference may be the way forward, I guess, for us. Yeah. All right, I want to thank you, Rowan. This is a really great conversation, and I hope to have you back, and we back. can spend more time talking about one of these great people and your work. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks right. for having me. Thanks so much. Thanks. Okay, take care. Yep. Thank you.